Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is the only podcast geared towards addiction treatment, behavioral health center owners, executives, and directors. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in growth, inquiry generation, and admissions processes, anything and everything that can help your center grow and create business scalability. Today we are speaking with John Cates. John Cates is a long-term veteran of the addiction treatment space, particularly with adolescents, but also with adults. He's the founder of Lifeway International and Cates Academy, and he's also the chief clinical officer at Sparrow Health. We're talking with John about alternative peer groups, which is a really fascinating, I don't even know if I want to say fascinating, but important concept within addiction treatment that is rarely utilized uh, as much as it should be. So if you look at the research, and John will talk about this a little bit, but generally programs that utilize uh, alternative peer groups or APGs have a three times higher success rate in helping people in terms of long-term recovery. So this is huge, yet we don't hear about them too much. So John's gonna tell us a lot about what they are. You know, He was really instrumental in the growth of APGs um, in Texas and elsewhere, and just why they are effective and how they can also help on the business end. So John has seen just um, vast amounts of success and, and growth in his own treatment programs and centers that he ran, and he attributes a lot of that to uh, APGs. So very much uh, looking forward to having you listen to his story and learn from him. Here we go. Hey, John, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm super excited to have you today. I mean, I think we've got a really interesting topic for everybody. So, you know, first off, can you just introduce yourself a bit and tell us about your journey in the field of addiction treatment? Well, I first let me tell you what a pleasure it is to be asked. Uh, it's really a great, a great honor to be asked and get a chance to talk about recovery, and especially these days because there's so much happening. But uh, I've been doing this for about 42 years. Uh, I came into this field one of those functioning guys who functioned his way all the way into working on a master's degree in teaching school while he was selling heroin in Houston, Texas in <laughs> 1975 and doing a lot of heroin mm. um, and got arrested in 75, walked into the grandfather. We we're going to be talking about alternative peer groups today. Walked into right. the grandfather of alternative peer groups, uh, the original one in Houston, Texas, planning on conning them and going to court for me and trying to keep me to go to prison the rest of my life because sure. that's what I was facing. It was a horrible situation. Oh, wow. uh, co-defendant in the case, my best friend and roommate decided he was going to keep on dealing. It was a record amount of heroin. I was on TV. I was in the news. Broke my parents' heart. Mm-hmm. Totally, completely thematically different than what I was raised and how I grew up. I was a good boy. I really was. Uh, all all through my life till I started using. And of course, this stuff breaks your brain and creates aberrant psychology. And boy, was I aberrant. <laughs> uh, but my uh, to make it worse, as I was, I was saying, my roommate decided he was going to deal more, make a bunch of money, buy his way out of the court case. Undercover agents came to arrest Jeez. him again. He thought they were other junkies coming to steal from him. I just happened to not be there. Uh, he ran to his bedroom grabbed his deer rifle out of his closet, fired three shots through the door, hit three federal agents. They shot him 12 times and killed him. Wow. So in 1975, I was a school teacher arrested for sales and possession of a record amount of heroin at that time, given the composition and still I'm told to this day, given the composition for the Harris County area, the Houston area. Mm. And, uh, I the co-defendant had shot three federal agents. They shot him and killed him. So I was all that was left to try. And the prosecutor had made comments in the paper that he would rather see a murderer go free than somebody like me. Wow. And uh, the uh, word was they were asking 90 years, uh, which was worse than a life sentence in those days. Hmm. A life sentence came up for first parole at like 16 years. A 90-year sentence, first opportunity parole was 34 years. Um, so that's what I was facing. And I say all that saying I was so insane that I still thought, surely I can handle this. I can control it. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, 
I just made a little slip up, a little mistake. I'll go to this Palmer drug abuse program thing because that's what my attorney said. They had some pull with the courts. Right. Maybe they could cut it, the sentence down some. I'd go to this Palmer drug abuse program thing, con them into going to court for me. That was mm. my plan. And the way APGs work, they're ready for that con. Like, huh. like, like sure. a lot of other venues, also treatment venues, everybody knows that with this, the people coming in that are sick, they're coming in thinking they need to, to lie, you know, yeah. and need to not be honest, et cetera. And so right. they were ready for me, but they were ready for me with flavor too, which is another by mark of an alternative peer group. It's okay. the environment, the enthusiastic recovery. I walked in, they looked like me. Actually, they looked better than me. They had skin color skin instead of what I had. They were happy. The, the girls were good looking. The guys were cool. Uh, they welcomed me when I was so hot. Nobody else would have anything else to do with me. And uh, and so I just kept on coming to meetings, planning on conning them, like I said. And while I was doing that, though, I kept picking up two things. I picked up knowledge and I picked up relationships. Mm. But relationships based around staying alive. Uh, based around honesty, based around finding some sort of power greater than myself mm. and my own best thinking to help guide me. And, you know, all of the tenets you hear about that, that over time will equate to change. So it started to sink in. And on March the 5th, I uh, went to a camp out with them. Uh, couldn't keep on getting high on the side because I was on a camp out. So I, and I think I'd run out of dope, too. So I went sober and I took my guitar because I was like the guitar player in Animal House, the goofy guy. And <laughs> there were girls going to be there, duh, so take your guitar. And, uh, and I stayed sober for three days. And I came back and I thought, well, and it's because I'd been in those meetings and hanging out with them a little bit socially. Uh, at that point, things started to sink in that uh, they I kept hearing about this 30 day thing, 30 days. Well, I'll give that a try. So I went ahead and did 30 days and then another 30. And it was 42 years ago, last March 5th. And uh, when I went to trial, it was a miracle. Uh, I mean, another miracle. I, my life is full of these miracles. Um, some things that happened in the background. Somebody heard about the case who had a lot of with the courts and I mean a lot okay. like over the governor beyond the governor wow. and uh, had heard about the case and I had about four months sober by that time and I was really deeply involved in the group I start crying when I start thinking about this um, mm -hmm. was deeply involved in what was happening on a relationship basis and starting to reach out to others and I've gone on to what they call a steering committee uh, and they still call steering committees, by the way. As we talk about this, one of the things we're going to be talking about is with the alternative peer group approach. We've got 50 years of learning how to do it, mm. you know, here. And, and it's not just in Texas, although that's where it started, was in Houston. And um, so, you know, the peer approach has been something we've been working with for a very long time. And they they learned these started to learn these things back then, and I was involved in the steering committee and went to trial. And out of nowhere, they gave me probation for ten years. Wow! And I wanted to help. I'd been working in a concrete yard all that time, and uh, those nine months waiting for that trial, I wanted to help. So I opened up, according to Vanderbilt University, the free first freestanding recovery high school in my apartment. <laughs> Mine in my roommate's okay. apartment. All right. In 1976, it was by I uh, went went to trial, you know, in uh, June and opened up the school in July of 1976. Went out because see, I was trained as a teacher. Yeah. And I was trained in curriculum and instruction. I wanted to help, and the program was pretty big by that time already. There were about seven, eight hundred people in the program, and there were no alternative schools. That, that hadn't happened yet in the field. If you got busted, you were sent out, period. You were kicked out. They didn't care what happened. That was it. And um, uh, so I started this thing up, and what I did was I bought a bunch of uh, 
uh, of uh, TV trays and broke down a bunch of GED training manuals into learning modules and I would have them come into my apartment every day. We had about 35 students to start. Okay. And they'd come to my apartment every day and, and uh, diagnostically figure out what they had left that they hadn't been able to get done and helped them taught it, helped them get it done to where they could pass their GED and go on to college and everything. And, uh, but we formed, you know, student organizations and had a yearbook and <laughs> all wow. sorts of stuff. It was real cool. And uh, then they asked me, Padaf asked me to go into training as a counselor. And there was no licensed chemical dependency counselor or anything like that at that time. Um, this was all in the, the man, <laughs> the beginning days. Sure. Uh, folks, intervention wasn't even a word yet. That's how far back this is. Wow. Uh, uh, the idea that you were going to leverage somebody, what we called bringing the bottom up, when we would talk to families, that was brand new. That was revolutionary because uh, everybody thought you had to let them hit a bottom. Gosh, they didn't yeah. even think adolescents and even adults could get sober because we hadn't heard enough. Yeah, yeah you know? hit the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a thing for a while, right? It was, oh, it was wild, you know, and I, we had old timers, you know, that just thought that it was crazy that we were even trying this, that it would never work, but it did. Um, and I went in as a counselor and then I went up out to Fort Bend, which is a suburb of Houston. And I worked with the school district out there. I opened up a, what they call a satellite, which is a group out in the community. And I opened up a, a relationship with the high school there. And we put a counselor contractually into Dulles High School, walking the halls and set up a relationship where if somebody got arrested because they started bringing the dogs in at that time mm. if somebody got busted at school instead of them kicking them out which is what had happened was happening everywhere else around the country in those days they would give them a choice and they could you know go to the program and do and the parents could go to the program or they would kick them out and they did and it worked then they asked me to be the director of houston and um I took it and Houston grew very rapidly during that time. God graced a lot of stuff. There were halfway houses and gosh, we did girl houses. We had relationship contracts with adult and juvenile probation. Adult probation was managing my probation, but I had four counselors that worked for me that were contracted to adult probation. <laughs> it was interesting time. The program got real big. The school grew. Uh, we had a hospital program that worked with us, Houston International Hospital, and then we grew even bigger. Uh, 3,700 young people were in the program. As wow. far as we know, it was the largest metropolitan drug abuse program in the world in history. We don't Jeez. know of anything else like that. So were you then. running this as a nonprofit, for-profit? Was yes. this kind of government-funded? How was this no. going about? No, it was nonprofit, and we didn't take any government funds. Okay. Um, beyond the contracts like with juvenile probation and adult probation. Hmm. And uh, we, um, we were really deeply in about that time, the guy who had founded the program along with Father Charlie White Brown, a fellow named Bob Meehan, uh, had somehow or another, Carol Burnett heard about the program and about all of this okay. and sent Carrie, her daughter out, and it made the news. And then you were in People Magazine, and all, oh, it's just mm -hmm. a big, huge deal. And um, gosh, we were on TV. Uh, it was just wild. By this time, the there had been some problems in Dallas, and I went up to Dallas, to, took over Dallas, which was the second largest pro, 1800. And uh, there was some reorganization and things. I was supposed to be temporary, but I ended up staying up there until the program went through some things and I left for four years and ran uh, and shot films, produced and directed commercial and industrial films. Anyhow, okay. but it was, it got big. John Bradshaw, I don't know if you know that name or not, got deeply involved okay. at that time and uh, inner child of the past, that guy, and went out to California, got really plugged in with all the stars and everything. It's a big deal. By this time we were in, Padap was in, I think, seven or eight cities. Jeez. It was, it was, you know, really spreading out, really starting to spread out. I mean, were you 
building this or was it just kind of growing organically and you were just kind of along for the ride? <laughs> well, I wasn't along for the ride because I had, I had all these uh, payrolls I had to worry about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. In Houston, we had 205 full-time counselors at wow. that time. And in Dallas, we had half of that almost, you know, is, you know, same kind of pressure. And, everything. and it was all nonprofit. There were no fees at all paid anywhere. Um, and it, it was a lot to do. But it was a different, different atmosphere, nonprofit at that time. It was a little bit easier in some ways okay. if you had a good, strong board and good contacts. And we did in most cases. But... Um, as happens often with these things, Padap went through a big uh, fall to roll around that time. Carol, uh, it got lots of attention. Lots of attention always creates infighting, and there was some infighting that went on. Hmm. And um, I left the I left Padap at that time, and like I said, I was in Dallas. I shot films for four years and volunteered in the field, um, producing, directing commercials and industrial films. Made a lot of money. And then decided I, I, there were a group of parents who kept calling, I kept working with, and I thought, well, I'm going to do, take some of this money. I hadn't had any kids yet, so I got to keep the money. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And I thought, you were talking about having children earlier. I said, yeah. You'll understand this. Yeah. <laughs> so I opened up uh, a residential, uh, well, a, a, actually it was an adolescent foster care home in Dow, outside of Dallas and 1985 and a therapy center internal in, inside of Dallas and the kids would live out in the foster care home and then they'd go into the treatment center every day. That started in 85. And I didn't want to do that without the alternative peer group element because without it, I knew that it was just another 30, 60, 90 day thing that we didn't have the research then but we all felt like it was a much longer stabilization period than 30, 60, or 90 days. And we knew that alternative peer groups could provide uh, case management and coordinate all of, you know, all of the continuing work. And then if you change your friends, other research says, you change your friends, you're going to make it. You don't, yeah. you won't. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the hardest pieces. And we were used to, instead of going, well, yeah, that's a phenomena, we looked at it as a tool and something to be addressed that uh, changing your friends is a very powerful tool. And you know what? Uh, yeah. As a profession, we need to address it. And so we continued to build that. And we started, I started Lifeway in uh, 85 in Dallas. Lifeway started up. And by 1992, in seven years, it had grown from Lifeway and its affiliates were in 11 cities in the United States, three in Canada, we had four of our own residential programs and four high schools, recovery high schools. Wow. And then, if you don't know it, uh, in 1992, managed care walked into the world, and everybody shut down everything everywhere. You couldn't get somebody into a residential program for more than about eight days to save your life, mm. and insurance pay for it. And it was the engine you know, the financial engine of the program or the residential program. Right. So all of that shut down. Some of those things are still out there, by the way, under different names. And for example, uh, well, there's, there's a bunch of them out there. And, and the affiliates at that time also included some of the, the PADAP programs, you know, that had, for one reason or another, moved ahead. And some had changed names, all sorts of things. But it was all over the country, you know, these kinds of things. But then this blow came from the managed care deal. And then we began to build it up in Houston, especially. We started to work with uh, Medicaid. Medicaid, okay. it's real funny because at the time, Medicaid would pay for peer recovery approaches. Hmm. And then it stopped because managed care came into Medicaid in 1997. Mm, and oh. and uh, that was the end of that. And so, again, it all broke down. Things split off, all sorts of things. And then uh, from that point till now, it has grown and grown and different programs have grown and using these alternative peer groups. Then Greg Williams came in about three years ago. He had heard about this 
phenomena in the Houston area, although it is much broader than Houston, mm -hmm. but centers in Houston. And, and the peer recovery idea was really catching hold on the coast, you know. Yeah, it's starting to. Yeah. <laughs> and he was coming in and he'd heard about this. So he did this film. We, we'd heard about peer recovery. We thought, yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. It's a great and guess idea. what? Right. We spent, we've, got, we've got all these policies and procedure manuals and curriculums and you know, these training programs, four and five month training programs for counselors, they're ready to certify, et cetera. So let's rock with this. That's a great idea. So it's a thrilling time for us right now. Um, the, as the film got made, it gave impetus to creating and organizing something we've never done before really effectively, and that was the Association of Alternative Peer Groups. Okay. And it is a continuing growing thing. And, uh, because it's all volunteer right now, it's we're we're doing what we can where we can. Sure. But we're all speaking like crazy all over the country and all sorts of stuff. And what's and, the name of the uh, film for listeners that aren't Generation familiar? Found, and you can yeah. get it on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And it focuses on uh, combining recovery high schools with alternative peer groups. And it changes everything when you do that. Um, it's not it's not the typical uh, alternative school where you go to school from eight to three or eight to four, and then you go out, back out with all your old friends, and your parents are lost and terrified with no real support, et cetera. Yeah. This is a thing where everybody in the school is a part of the parent of the alternative peer group and the parents are going to parent meetings and it's being case managed and when bad things start to happen it's there it's there's an intervention that will go you know an interventive element that will go into play to either avoid that bad thing or minimize its effects or make it where you can return quickly from the effects depending on how far it goes um, and more most important create enthusiasm fun you know this I, in my story i said that i went on a camp out and i had my guitar and you know what i had fun every time i went to the meetings i had fun uh out on the streets i was scared you know if i was loaded and they're just have i have to get lucky one night yeah i had fun but most of the time i was scared and worried and hustling and in fact, I was using to take the scared and hustle, you know, off. Right. That was part of it. It was like you'd be terrified when you were sober, you'd score and the terror would go away. Mm. You know, or you'd be lonely or depressed or whatever. But when I'd go to those meetings, I wasn't lonely or depressed. They were there and they would reach out to me. I was too insecure to reach out very much, but they would reach out to me. And, and uh, it wasn't just the the cool, good-looking people that got reached out to us, although that phenomenon did occur. So. <laughs> sure. But there was an organized effort to make sure that the non-cool, the, the goofy, the, the scary, that's, that got reached out to. It was organized, and, and it was a major element, and it still is. You'll hear reach out, reach out, reach out in alternative peer groups all the time. It's almost like a battle cry. So can you talk a bit more about alternative peer groups? Because like you said, the center is really Houston and they're spreading a bit, but they're not really common across treatment programs in the country. So what is an alternative peer group and, and what happens? Well, that's a, there's two parts to that question. Um, let me answer the, the, the main element first. What is an alternative peer group? An alternative peer group program is an organized and themed approach to either s supporting, depending on how many elements of the recovery process you can pull together, either supporting or doing uh, treatment. And when I say that, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, some alternative peer group pro programs have had their own residential programs, their own sober living, their own high schools, you know, their own IOPs, their own detox, and have it all under one umbrella, okay? In addition, under that umbrella, and kind of the umbrella itself was this group of friends for the family and the people in the program. The very first thing I want to say to you is an alternative peer group 
everybody who does or is aware of APGs, and I'd like to use that term from this point on, alternative mm-hmm. theory of APGs, they think of them in adolescence. But here are the facts. APGs have been used effectively, again, for almost 50 years. Well, they have been used for 50 years with young adults as well as adolescents, and almost for 50 years with what we call the others, which is the over 25-year-olds, mm. over the hillers, others. <laughs> Obviously, it was young people running the program when they made that up, but uh, <laughs> but they've been used with that age for a very long time, too. Right now, almost all of the alternative peer group programs are focused on adolescents. However, there are some that are, are uh, in Houston, LifeWay's focused on uh, adults, the over 25-year-olds. But the APG basically fills in by on purpose and by method and with experience that element of recovery that centers around you're going to need a new group of friends Mm -hmm. and not only will it be helpful for you it'll be helpful for your family i don't care if it's parents wives husbands aging parents siblings children in cases of some adults you know the children are bringing in their dads and moms who are lost but they need support and they need direction because the research says it's 18 months to four years. We're so gl- I love research, by the way. Yeah. I, I worked for 25 years running around going, we think it's a disease. It acts like a disease. We're going to use a medical model, you know, all these qualifiers. Mm-hmm. So when the, when the, when, when they started using MRIs and uh, CAT scans on something besides presidents, hey. <laughs> you know, and they had enough of them to really look at this and started coming out with what we suspected, you know, for the, all that time that was really happening, that these substances are causing brain damage. That brain damage is causing aberrant growth of the person. And that aberrant growth creates bad decisions, self-destructive and other destructive decisions. And the reason why they have trouble getting well is because it's the brain is broken that's why you know and the personality has become aberrant so it takes time 18 months to four years Mm. so an apg will tie all of that together and make sure there's continuity of care in that process an alternative peer group and include that element that you need to change your friends yeah you need the support you need friends who, who know what to intervene on and who know how to intervene and who will intervene. And I'm not just talking about things like don't, don't, don't do a hit. I'm talking about things from my own experience. I remember I had about a year and a half sober, and I had a friend of mine with me who was in the group, and we were getting ready to go to a movie. And I'm standing in line at the movie, and this girl who was, boy, she was just smoking hot. And an old girlfriend, an, or I, an old, I wish she had been my girlfriend, okay? <laughs> One right. of those situations. She comes up to me in the line and says, oh, it's so good to see you. You didn't go to prison. That's awesome. You know, I always wanted to hang out with you. Blah, 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 blah. You know? Okay. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now, she's still using, all right? Okay. I got about a year and a half sober. She goes, what movie are you going to? Let's sit together. I'll, sa- I'll, I'll save you a seat. Okay. And I got to tell you, I was getting excited, you know? Sure. And I was about to change the movie we were going to and suggest we go to the other one. She walked ahead. My friend and roommate, by the way, he looked at me and says, let me tell you something, man. If you go in there and you sit down with her, you very well may not stay sober a week. I know you. And I went, and I needed that. And I didn't go in. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe I would have made it through it. But having that person there who could read the situation, who understood the disease and understood me, to say that simple thing, you know, this was not a Johnson-style intervention. My family didn't gather together with scripts. Mm -hmm. This was a statement made to me. But it was a statement that came out of the organization of this alternative peer group. That's the way it was organized. That's the way it worked. Um, 
So, so that's what an APG is. So and, and there are processes and procedures. It is, as I said, there's, a, there's curriculum, there's policies and procedures. Uh, they put together steering committees. They plan uh, functions, not only for the, the people who are in recovery, but the families. Enthusiastic recovery is an absolute theme. Okay. Uh, Talent-based hiring is a concept that's applied. If you don't apply it, you're not going to be able to pull this off. Um, that's what an APG is. Why is it not the other part of the question? Why is it in as why is it not better known? Mm-hmm. And I, I saw I, I thought about that, you know, as we were coming into this. What why is it that we've gone through these times of this big and I, I hate to say this, but part of it is happenstance, just to be honest with okay. you. Had had things gone differently in 92 when managed care came in i told you how fast things were growing yeah i believe that treatment would be a different scenario it might not be called apg but i think that treatment of this these diseases this disease would have been uh much much different because in the places we were we were truly truly challenging on a business level those other organizations that weren't embracing and doing what they needed to do to approach this disease okay and that is how the disease that's how the industry changes uh, unfortunately i wish it would change based on we we get the research and we do what's supposed to be done yeah so what we do with other diseases i i uh, almost died twice from uh, this disease the first time in shootouts and overdoses and uh, all of that kind of thing but the mm. second time 35 years of sobriety later at my 50 year old uh, exam the doctor told me i had picked up hepatitis c and b mm. from shooting dope way 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 back and they start to watch me and about four years later they saw liver cancer mm. pop up and they said, you need a transplant. And so they started looking for a liver. And about a year later, they found the liver. And I go in for the transplant. And they do this surgery. And there's a whole team of people. And there's an oncologist and hepatologist and all of these surgeons. You know, they, they, they watch everything that goes on with me. The transplant goes wonderfully. Uh, I mean, just unbelievably. They didn't even have to put me on the, on a heart machine or anything. And I come out. They're tracking what I'm eating, how that matches up with the medications. There's a team looking over it. You know, there's all this continuity of care. Yeah. Notice what I'm building here. And they're doing that because that's what the research says. And then they start doing scans to make sure everything goes okay. They do them first every three months, then every six months, and every year, then every two years. And I had my six-year scan, and I've been totally clean, you know, ever since. And I had my six-year scans a few months ago. And the doctor, after the scan, you know, that when you go in to get your results and everything, you know, mm-hmm. he comes in, he has a book about two inches thick. It's the John Cates liver book. Okay. <laughs> it's all my records for the amount of time that the research says you're supposed to track and keep continuity of care mm, on. Okay. So that's what we do. And guess what? It's the same doctor or part of the same team that started all the, you know, eight, nine years ago. And that's what the research says is supposed to be done with that disease. The research says what's supposed to be done with the disease we deal with, the substance use diseases, it is supposed to be 18 months to four years, continuity of care, new friends, support the family, yep. intervene and support, enthusiastic recovery. We know this. It's in the research. And we know when it's applied that, according to Baylor College of Medicine, when it's applied, you've got about a triple of the success rate of the next runner-up. Right. All things even, you know, except the continuity of care and the APG and all the elements involved in that. Yeah. But, so we know all this, but this is not the first time in history. Uh, for a hundred years, 
after aspirin was invented, there were still doctors walking around putting leeches on people. Sure. You know, it, it changes slow and right. it, the money seems to drive it. And we're in a mm. horrible culture. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, I do a lot of advocacy work these days. Yep. And I, I got to tell you, we're opening up a new front. You know, in the past, advocacy has been all talking to uh, presidents and congressmen and those kind of things. Well, we're opening up a new front and it has to do with our public is not aware and has been sold a bill of goods. We have most, we have billions and billions of dollars are being made off of these substances. And frankly, they're just poison. The chances of them causing brain damage are very, very high, much higher than the other, than some other things that we don't allow to be advertised on television to children, mm. you know, and, uh, if the public other grabs hold of how we're being treated kind of like cattle by big business, then we may be able to get back to things where we act responsibly on what we expose our children to. So there's a front opening up, hopefully, with, with the populace to re-educate to what's really going on out there mm, and okay. what's really happening with us. So I'm off subject a little bit, but sure, that's fine. It's I mean, kind of connected, right? Definitely. <laughs> why? Why is it in most places? Actually, part of it's happenstance, bad timing. Had managed care not come along, I think we would have been in lots and lots of places. I think that this would be going on uh, because it has to work economically, and it was working economically, and it's mm. just now starting back. If if you'll notice this resurgence of this alternative peer group as a viable technique is coinciding with new funding for treating the disease. Yeah, I think a lot of it's driven by insurance. You know, and we see that in the industry pretty consistently where what gets yep. covered is what gets treated, you know, and yep. so a lot of people maybe want to move in an evidence-based care direction, but if insurance right. is going to cover it, then then you're out of luck, you know, and that's, that's not the way it should be. Yep, that's exactly right. So with the alternative peer groups, um, as far as they kind of work into the continuum of care, like how often are people going to an alternative peer group? How much time per week are they spending in that part of the program? Well, in, in the best of scenarios, what happens is, okay, uh, exactly what happened with me. Uh, somebody walks in the door, they meet with a counselor, the counselor uh, assesses what's going on, and suggests that they start coming to some meetings, starts and talks to the family also immediately, mm -hmm. and gets all of them coming to meetings. Well, those meetings also have social activities that are happening every weekend, sometimes less, sometimes during the week, right after the meeting, you know, just like a lot like an AA group. Mm -hmm. They'll go out after the meeting, go to coffee, and go sit and talk and hang out and those kind of things. Yeah. But there are planned social activities every weekend. You know, every weekend there's stuff going on, so you don't have to gravitate back to your old partying buddies, you know. Sure. Uh, and there's things for the family. Uh, and, I, and again, this is at all different ages, whatever the family element is. There's stuff to support. And the social activities serve a lot of serve. There's a lot of learning that will go on. If you'll think about that example I gave you, that I'm carrying 42 years or 40 years later in my recovery of the movie theater. Mm -hmm. I was at a social activity when I learned <laughs> that I need to be careful with this girl. Mm -hmm. You know, right. it was a learning, it was a learning event right then. And uh, it came from sticking with winners. I had hung out with this guy. He was a friend of mine. He knew me and, and, and this wasn't our first time to be around each other. Yeah. So, you have that going. Now, you're going to have a certain amount of people that that's not enough, of course. And you're going to have to place them either in detox, anywhere from detox to a, um, a dual or multiple diagnosis unit with therapy, you know, other kinds of therapy, you know, specialists and all sorts of things can come to play. But while that's going on, while that's going on, there still needs to be the alternative peer group element. Because if they do go into a residential program, that's fine. The best residential programs, what they'll do is, as soon as they're stable enough, 
they'll get them out of the group and actually start mingling with the alternative peer group. Because that alternative peer group is where you're going to do your most work the next 18 months to four years until okay. you show that you have, you have uh, tools that are going on and that are in play that you have stabilized and all you need is going to some sort of maintenance process, AA, MA, church, pro, you know, some kind of maintenance program that matches up with your, your, your process. Right. Some people need medications, you know, but they need to be medications that are done systematically, carefully, those kinds of, the, and it needs to be insinuated into this. You don't stay sober in a residential program. You stay sober in real life. Right working, playing, having families, coming home late at night, tired and worn out, you know, mm -hmm. you, that's where you stay sober. So anything that can support your getting into that for the amount of time that the research says it takes for you to stabilize in this process, that's what the alternative peer group does. Uh, create, they actually, the APG really is the uh, case manager, you know, Okay. It is the case management team, just like the case management team for me and my liver. Whatever I needed, if I needed to eat a waffle, they knew that because they were checking my blood. You know, sure. Uh, it's the same, the same kind of thing that that should be done, and that's what an APG does. So, where is the payment coming from? So you're talking about 18 months to four years, you know, attendance and you know, alternative peer group and you've got the family involved, you know, is that an out-of-pocket expense or how would I incorporate that into a treatment center model? Well, one of the other things, you know, in the, the old question that you asked a few minutes ago about um, uh, why is it not more predominant in, in treatment, mm -hmm. I will tell you the what the APG programs have learned in the past at these different points uh, was that that element, the APG element, is not not only can it take care of itself economically, it actually creates, the reason why we grew so fast from 85 to 92 is the APG element actually creates more funding. And here's why. And it's very, but but because the people who own most of the big companies uh, are not used to this model or don't understand it, they were slow to do it. We understood it, so we did it, and it worked like a charm. Other folks who have come out of different disciplines, uh, business-wise, didn't know, and, and it's hard to get it across to them how they have, you have to do everything. You can't do a few things. You have to do everything. Okay. And, but if you do everything, economically, here's what happens. Number one, in that 18 months to four, you know what, do you know what program hopping is? Uh, I mean, just moving between different programs because. Right. Yeah. The typical thing that happens with this disease is, okay, you go to Joe Blow's residential center, you go through detox, you come out of the residential center, you, uh, you go to AA for a while, one of the relapse processes comes along, you know, you see the girl at the movie, bang, you're loaded. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, right. you're loaded, and because your family wasn't deeply involved and there's no APG, you get loaded for another four months, you build up all that aberrant psychology, which is going to make unwise decisions for treatment, you get busted, and you tell your family, for, because you have this disease, well, I went to Joe Blow's and it didn't work, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. So you go on to Mary Sue's residential program. And on and on and on. If you have an APG going, if Joe Blows had had an APG going, first of all, long before he got busted, mom and dad would have, or, or, or husband or wife or whoever would have started an interventive process. And whatever was happening, even if I had gotten loaded, even if you had gotten loaded from the girl, it would have been short-lived and turned right back around into Joe Blow's residential program or intensive outpatient or whatever it is that would be appropriate okay. at that point. So instead of you having these one-time payers, it's an 18 months to four-year payer on the clinical elements. Even if he's not paying anything to go to the meetings and the, 
you know, those kind of deals, because you can spread that with your staff, frankly, if you know how to do it. That's what we did. We, we spread the cost centers to cover all that's necessary in an APG. And by doing that, we actually created more income. Hmm, yeah, I'm still that not quite sense? clear where it's coming from. So the insurance is continuing to pay during that period, or is it private pay at that point? No, the insurance. First of all, there's quite a bit of profit if you if you cross the break-even line in a in a residential setting, mm -hmm. and and in an IOP in some of the other clinical settings, quite a bit of profit if you cross the break-even line. Mm -hmm. APGs provide two things. One, they provide excellent marketing. Okay. Right, because you got got Mr. and Mrs. McGillicuddy telling Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Smith at church, whose son just got busted, hey, this is a great place, because mm -hmm. they're still involved. So yeah, you've got good sense. marketing going. So your chances at the residential or the clinical elements of cro that are paid for, either insurance or private pay or something like that, your chances of crossing the break-even point are much, much higher. Okay. All right. Then when you do cross, so just because of the marketing element, but then you add in the return, you're keeping the clients until they truly, that's part of, that's one way of doing it. A second way, a second process that I have seen done is, uh, is you have nonprofit. Okay. You go with nonprofit okay. and you have some that's private pay. You, you still are, you still are licensed, so you can still charge you know, uh, and, but you still have nonprofit funds on the side to make up the shortfall. If there's a shortfall, mm -hmm. typically when it's run right and done right, there's not a shortfall. Okay. Typically, if it's run right and done right, you're actually increasing your income by using the alternative peer group because you're catching those folks who would go to something else before you know, they're coming back to you. And you've got the marketing of that big group. Remember I said there were 3,600 people in the program in Houston? Right. Think about having 3,600, and those were the active ones at the time. There were probably 10,000, 12,000 who had been touched by the program. Okay. Think about having those 3,600 plus the 10 or 12,000 alumni walking around. Everybody in this city knew about that app at that time. Mm. Everybody. Okay. You can't buy marketing like that. So it sounds like the payment model was, you know, making money in terms of the, the full high-end treatment with res or PHP, and then spreading that cost out over the alternative peer group, you know, downline, and then just through the marketing element, you know, having more people into the... Right. The, and keeping the clients through right. the full period. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know what? That's exactly the way they pay for all the social elements and all that kind of thing with liver cancer. Okay. <laughs> they do that there too. Huh. It's just that liver cancer is not as socially intense to deal with. Okay. Although as we're uh, this week, I have appointments with the liver transplant center here to talk about because in liver and kidney diseases and heart diseases, guess what you find a lot of times? Mm, Substance abuse. Oh, okay. So uh, they're, they're really starting to think about, you know what, we need to expand our social elements. Hmm. Very interesting. So with the APGs, you know, it sounds like there's a social support network. You know, when you talk about your friend at the movie theater, it almost sounds like a sponsor. You know, what would you say the difference is between attending a standard 12-step meeting and an APG? There's a staff member to coordinate it which gets down to some of the new uh, new things that are starting to develop. I work with a group called Spera Health, okay. James Crater and Chase Merlin yep. out of uh, Nashville. Yeah, yeah, they're good And guys. you know those guys? Yeah, yeah. We just did a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago with James. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't know you, this was the same one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. That's us. Uh, that's Well, you know what they're doing. Yes. Uh, well, the beauty of what they're doing and some of the things that I've been allowed to do with them on that is taking, we're talking about building community, building a community. Mm -hmm. And the difference between 
a typical uh, AA, those kind of things, is there's an actual staff member who each group of about 30 or 40 people and their families, he is responsible for coordinating what's going on with them. All right. Let's suppose that I had sat down with that girl at that movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. He would have got back to my counselor that I was off with this using chick, you know, and he would have talked to me about it. Okay. All right. And he not only, and, and we're not talking about just, you know, just whoever might hear about it like we do in, in the program in AA. We're talking about it's his job to step in and go, hey, man, I heard you got with some girl. We need to really talk about this. So there was backup in case the grace of the moment of my friend saying something didn't happen. There was backup coming from this facilitator. Okay. okay? So that's a huge difference. Let's suppose he to talk to me. You don't understand. I'm desperately in love. I can't stop. I'm gone with her. In, in, a, in the best of scenarios, I would have had family also. And that facilitator, that counselor, would then have approached the family, my family, and started talking about some interventive elements okay. to cut that short, you know what I mean, and mm. step in, that kind of thing. So that counselor makes all the difference in the world. That means you have to have talent-based hiring. You have, to, you have to have somebody who knows how to do it. It's kind of a natural talent kind of thing. So if you're really going to do an APG, you hire people that other folks are already naturally attracted to and already the uh, feedback that this, this counselor or facilitator might have is on, on the beam with how to treat this disease. Okay. Um, you still have to train them because there's all sorts of things that have to be done. Sure. But this Spare Health app is a tool, a new tool for the counselors. Used to, man, I, I did this before we had computers. <laughs> I, had, I did this before we had cell phones or car phones. And man, you talking about wearing a phone out, trying to keep up with all that. Oh, it was, it was crazy. It was just crazy. Now, but and you bring along something like this, this Spare Health app uh, rally, and it's the facilitator can do all that. Okay. By the way, I, I, I do want to mention, you know, in the where it's being done and everything, that there are several places that are working with APGs right now. I just got back uh, Wheeler Clinic in Connecticut. This is interesting stuff, too. The state of Connecticut, via, and it's being managed by Wheeler Clinic, uh, Clinic in Hector Maldonado in uh, Connecticut, and a SAMHSA grant are getting ready to open up 20 new alternative peer group programs around the state. Hmm. Uh, Maria Morris out of the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services in New York is getting ready to open up a very similar process in New York, these alternative peer group programs. Stuart Strofe, and then there's some that have been around for a long time. Stuart Strofe and his PADAP in New Mexico, uh, Somerset County ARC program in Maryland, Chris Schwartzfigur. Uh, I just got back from Pittsburgh. Uh, Sherry Phillips, Tim McDowell, and Todd Stumball, you know, Acadia, that, that organization, yeah. they have that new freedom recovery, and they've opened up the Hope for APG in Pittsburgh. I spoke at their gala uh, about three weeks ago. Dave Larson is in Colorado. Steve Markley's had Light of Hope in Santa Clarita, California for over 12 years, almost 20 years. Um, there's a group in Oklahoma, and... Uh, uh, gosh, Charlotte Bash over in Little Rock had a big deal going on over there. There's a lot. It actually is out there quite a bit, a lot more than you might think. All over Texas, almost all the big cities in Texas have it. So it sounds have. like it's definitely spreading across the U.S. You know, maybe we're back. Slightly. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> right. So, what resources exist out there? You know, if I want to create an APG within my own treatment program or center, you know, where do I start, or how, how do I? Well, the new that? thing again that we have that came out of Greg and and uh, Generation Found was this uh, 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 the Association of Alternative Peer Groups, and the best way to contact it is with uh go online it's the association of alternative peer groups but they have developed and i'm part of that 
Uh, it's a group of the, the alternative peer group programs, and they've taken all their alternate their policy and procedures and everything and created a certification okay. for an alternative peer group program. Uh, we're working now on training, getting these tra things we've learned about training these facilitators uh, nailed down and available to as many people as possible. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's well. Are you aware of the big conference coming up here next month? Mm -hmm. The Association of Alternative Peer Groups is combining with the Association of Recovery Schools okay. and the Association of Recovery and Higher Education and doing a four-day conference in Houston in oh. July. Okay. It's huge. It's huge. And you can go to any of those organizations' websites and register. Um but there's a lot of support for helping get this done. And hopefully the old man here says, I sure hope that this time we get it out there in a way so that it can be taken care of, taken advantage of over the coming years. Mm -hmm. um, I would sure love to see that. I would sure, sure love to see okay. that. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of executives and owners that are listeners here. Uh, you know, what are the costs if I want to get this started? You know, how much time do you think I would need and how much is it going to cost me to get it set up? Well, <laughs> that's, that's another. The best suggestion I have is to get in touch with the AAPG or they can call me at 713-459-9427. That's 713-459-9427. And I will plug them into the Association of Alternative Peer Groups. And the reason why I'm not throwing a cost out immediately is actually it depends on what you have and what the community has and what the organization has and already in place. Okay. Uh, you can do this at a profit from a profit-making standpoint. You can do this from a nonprofit or you can do a hybrid, you know, find situations and and do it the right way where there's some that is profit making it's taking care of part of the elements and then some that's not the uh i i will tell you that when i started lifeway in dallas i had uh, very very little money uh, to put on that we started out with a this is the truth the first appointments were done in a closet <laughs> donated by a church and it built out from there very, very rapidly. Uh, likewise, I have seen situations where $50,000 seed money is put in place and they don't follow through with what the association has learned on how to do it or they don't do it. I've seen millions put on the line hmm. and they don't do, do what they're supposed to do and it not work. So it really does, it's not so much how much you have, it's how you use what you have and if you will turn to the guys who have won this knowledge through blood, sweat, and tears over 50 years, whatever you have, it'll work. Hmm. It'll work if you will let folks lead you. It's and truly is that. there a particular research um, out there that you would recommend reading up on? Well, they, again, if you'll go to the association's website, there's research. Uh, there's a research section, research and articles. Okay. And it's it's got books. I wrote a book. Uh, uh, recovering your children, and it's not about adolescence. Everybody's somebody's child. And Annette Edens wrote a book. Meehan wrote a book. There's lots and lots of right. Oh, Crystal Collier has done great work. Uh, golly, uh, uh, I'm, I know I'm missing somebody, and it's gonna. I'm gonna hate that <laughs> later. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff, and and you can you can access it all at the website. Okay, and then based on your experience, you know, are there any um really specific do's and don'ts that you recommend? Yeah, Scott for? Basinger. Scott Basinger was <laughs> the author of some of the main research uh, that, that was done. That's who I was sitting here going, okay. oh, I don't want to forget him. <laughs> he was, that's the Baylor College of Medicine. He's my hero. <laughs> sure. But uh, do's and don'ts. Don't think you know what I'm talking about. Because you don't. Don't think it is anything you've seen before because it's probably not. Okay. And if you try to do that, it is going to minimally work, if not fail. I have watched that over and over and over again. Everybody thinks they have an idea of what I'm talking about. I've heard people go, oh, it's like a, 
It's like a therapeutic community. No, it is not. Oh, it's like AA. No, it's not. There's a, there is a counselor. Oh, by the way, and I do want to say this, from day one, when somebody walks in the door, infusing them into one of the non-staffed support groups is right. It is a prime directive. Okay. Right? It's not. It's not to take the place of AA or NA or any of the other organizations out there that do that. That maintenance. Mm-hmm. It is to help folks learn to use them and not abuse them. Um. So I, I wanted to get that out. But okay. what to do? If, if this is is a lot more complicated than it sounds. It's a whole lot more complicated than it sounds. The good news is there is huge amount of experience to draw from. Uh, it is uh, if you own a company, I will tell you this will be the smartest thing you ever did. Uh, you will blow everything else away and you will be so proud of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people you get well Hmm. well john thank you very much for all that information i mean like i said i think this is something that a lot of people aren't as familiar with as they should be um obviously the research is out there in terms of effectiveness and it's interesting that you talk about how effective it can be from a business standpoint as well so i really thank you for sharing that and taking your time to come on the show oh it's a pleasure what a joy. <laughs> great Monday. <laughs> what a great Monday morning. There's a lot of icky stuff can happen on Monday. This is not <laughs> That's it. true. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Um, so, yes, thank you so much. Um, again, you know, I know you shared your contact details on there, so I encourage anyone that's listening to reach out to John or get uh, connected however they can if they want to learn more about APGs and how those work. Again, this is a Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. You can download or listen live streaming from iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, basically anywhere the podcasts are found. And as always, uh, this podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in growth and marketing for addiction treatment behavioral health clinics. We thank you for joining us and look forward to having you join us again next time.